0: Pray with me. God and Father, as we turn now to your word, I pray that you would speak to all of us through it. Though we are sinful, call us to submit to its authority. Though I am sinful, be with me as I preach it. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Friends, this is it. If you've been with us for this journey, we've been preaching through the book of Revelation for the last Eight months, give or take, and we are finally at the end of the book. And way back eight months ago, we said that the purpose of this book was to give us a vision for the world, to pull back the curtain on our world and show us the truth about what is going on. Revelation is not a code book about predicting some future series of events. But rather, it is a set of symbolic visions revealing to us the reality of the past and present and future. And what I want to do today, as we come to the end of this book, is zoom back out and try to help us see that big picture, that vision, that Revelation is communicating. And what we're going to do is we're going to take this text, this final text in Revelation, and in this text I think we see four major themes. That are all woven through the rest of the book. Four themes. There is a warning, there is a blessing, there is an invitation, and there is a prayer. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to look at each of those themes here in this text and then zoom out and see how the whole book has woven that theme into our vision for the world. So let's start with the warning. There's a warning, or really a couple of warnings in this text. In verses eight and nine, we actually see the first warning. Uh, John receives this message from an angel, and he bows down to worship the angel, and the angel responds very sternly. He says, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Throughout the book of Revelation, we've actually seen a series of these warnings and several incidents just like this one. We've noticed in each of them that they are warning us against any false worship. Even even worshiping one of the Lord's angels is wrong. Worship God alone we are warned. In verse 12, we get another warning. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. This is a reminder of God's coming justice. While in this age justice for evil might be delayed, it will finally come. And we get a final warning then in verse 15. There's a promise that those who wash their robes may eat of the tree of life and enter the new Jerusalem. But then we are told this in verse 15. It says, Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. That's not meant to be an exhaustive list of sins, but rather it's using different examples that are used throughout scripture and in the book of Revelation to stand in for all the different ways that we rebel against God and his right rule of the world. And those people, we are told, who rebel against God will be excluded from the blessings of the heavenly city. Our choices in this life matter, and we will face the consequences of them if we are not hidden in Christ. Throughout the book of Revelation, these warnings really stand in for the two big images John gives of this world. The first thing John seeks to show us is the dark powers behind the forces of this world. There is the dragon, Satan. There are the two beasts who stand in for kind of imperial military might and the economic and religious forces that prop up that imperial power. There is Babylon, the prostitute who stands in for the corruption of the earthly city and the way that it corrupts those who participate in it. We do not live in a neutral world. That is what John wants us to understand. On the one hand, this world is created by God, and there is goodness in it from that, but on the other hand, this world is corrupted by sin, and sinful powers work in the world, and many of the seemingly innocuous parts of this world actually have those dark powers behind them. Compromise with the world is deadly in the book of Revelation, because it means we are actually compromising with and allying with those dark powers. And then the other theme of warning that John sounds throughout the book is that of judgment. He pictures all the broken realities of this age, famine and plague, war and tyranny, and he points in these pictures uh, to the reality that this age is under judgment and is passing away. Let me actually try to just apply that for just a minute because I'm starting to see on Facebook all these things popping up about the current coronavirus crisis that we're in, and the idea that that's somehow some sign that Jesus is about to come back. In scripture, despite the way some people read it, it is not the case that earthquakes and wars and famines and judgments only happen right before Jesus comes back. In, in fact, every hundred years or so throughout human history, we've had some major pandemic like this one sweep across the globe. And if anyone think this one seems a lot less dangerous than things like the plague. However, while they're not it's not the case that we can look at this current pandemic, this current plague that we're under and say, well, that means Jesus must come back in the next few months. What this is meant to teach us is the reality that this age as a whole is under judgment. It reveals to us the the limitations and the, the frailty of earthly power that all of the economic and military might that we are often so in love with, this microscopic virus is able to topple. And it reminds us of the reality that um, judgment is something that is coming and is something that we all deserve, and this is meant to be something that speaks that to our hearts. So all that together, then, that is John's warning. We need to live distinctive lives as Christians and not compromise with the world because the powers of this world actually have dark powers behind them, and they are all under God's judgment and will ultimately be destroyed. So that's the warning. And then the second thing we see is a blessing, a blessing. Really, John says two blessings. The first one is in verse seven. He says, behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Well, what does John mean there? Well, by the ones who keep the words of the prophecy of this book, he means those who are faithful to Jesus and do not turn aside and compromise with the world. But when he says that they are blessed, we need to recognize that throughout the book, John has been trying to reorient our idea of blessing. I mean, in our age, when people say, I'm so blessed, what do they have in mind? A lot of times they have in mind, say, economic prosperity, or the things that prosperity can buy, like vacations and new cars. But the problem is that John repeats repeatedly in this book, stresses the fact that economic prosperity is often denied to Christians, that there are costs if they choose not to compromise with the beast, and there are benefits they will miss out on if they don't become complicit with Babylon. Or we think of blessings in terms of an easy, comfortable life. But again, throughout this book, John tries to stress to us that the life of faith is one of conflict and suffering. Martyrs stand in as his ideal image of sort of what a faithful saint is supposed to look like, and that is far from an easy and comfortable life. So he's reorienting our image of blessing away from the ideas of this world. But what is he reorienting them to? Well, let's read verse 14. He says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by its gates. So first, John speaks of those who washed their robes. And we're gonna talk about this more a little bit later. But we need to recognize there, that doesn't mean that we cleaned ourselves up, that we put on our Sunday best and became righteous and made ourselves great. In Revelation, that image is repeated several times, and in each case what our robes are washed in is the blood of the Lamb. So this blessing is for those who have had their robes washed, who have had their sins cleansed by the blood of Jesus. But then what do they receive in that blessing? What is it that blesses them? It is the right. To receive the tree of life, and to enter the new Jerusalem. That is the blessing that John promises, which means we need to change our expectations of what a blessed life looks like. Consider the hopes that Revelation keeps pointing us back to. They are actually much deeper than the hopes this world offers. We are promised renewed life, transformed life in Jesus Christ with supernatural power at work in us, life that is flourishing and meaningful and lived for the glory of God. We are promised communion with that God, a direct personal connection to the maker and savior of the universe, and we are promised the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth, a world restored full of never-ending joy and peace and purpose. C.S. Lewis famously remarked, That it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are far too easily pleased. That's the problem with our ideas about blessing. We trade the infinite joy God offers, the infinite joy John is trying to point us to in Revelation. We trade that for passing, paltry things. And when we have those things, we say we are blessed, and when we lack them, we get angry at God, but we need to instead have our vision reoriented, those deeper desires affirmed to recognize what is truly good. So there's a warning and a blessing, and then third, we have an invitation, an invitation. Read verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. At its root, Revelation is about framing a choice for us, a fundamental, essential choice, a choice between the kingdom of this age and the kingdom of Jesus, a choice between the dragon and the lamb. The reason we need the book is because we often get confused about the terms of that choice. The world deceives us and dresses up things that are in truth ugly as if they are beautiful, and our sin deceives us and keeps us from recognizing the beauty of the things of God and convinces us that they are ugly. And so what Revelation is trying to do is to reframe the terms, but at the end of the day, that reframing exists because we are invited to choose Jesus and his ways to choose that which is truly good instead of what the world would invite us to. You can see that all through the book. Think about the letters to the churches. Each one of them ends with this promise of blessing to the one who conquers. And what John meant there by conquers is that they endure and refuse to compromise with the world and cling to Jesus, choose Jesus. So like in Revelation 2, 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Or the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Or to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, the bread of heaven, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except him, the one who receives it. And each church, as it goes on, is the same. Each of those are an invitation to choose what is truly good. A few chapters later, we get the image of the 144,000 and the great multitude and they represent the people of God. And John asks who they are, and this is what he's told. He's told, These are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Again, this is an invitation to choose, to choose what is truly good, to dwell in the presence of God instead of compromise with the world. Over and over, the theme happens again. Here, Revelation 14 John is told, fear God and give him glory, that's what they're called to choose, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water, and then a few verses later, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Those are invitations to choose what is truly good. Revelation 16, behold, I'm coming like a thief, blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. That's a call to choose what is truly good and to choose it each day, to continually seek to choose that. Revelation 17, speaking of the fall of Babylon, cries out to God's people. It says, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plague. That is a call to choose what is truly good. Or Revelation 21, as God makes all things new. He says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That is a call to choose what is truly good, to come and drink, to conquer in the Lamb. Here's what I want you to understand about that call, that invitation for us to choose the good. Three things about it. One, it is a choice that we have to make. We have to choose to come out, or to turn from the world, or to fix our hope on Jesus, or choose not to. I think the challenge for some of us as Christians is that we kind of try to sit on the fence. There's some things we like. The challenge for so many of us is that we try to sit on the fence. There's some stuff we like about Christianity, the eternal life and a new heavens and new earth part. And there's some stuff that we like from the world, some of the things that it promises that we want. And so we try to have it both ways. We are not willing to take up our crosses and die to this world. And Revelation would remind us that by trying not to choose, we are in fact choosing compromise with the world. We are accepting the mark of the beast sharing in Babylon's sin rather than coming out of her. You can't have it both ways. It's either the dragon or the lamb. You have to choose. Two, the second thing that we need to recognize is that it is a choice that we have to make each day, a choice we are constantly making between death and life, between the dragon and the lamb. Again, another error we can fall into is that Some of us as Christians think that, well, there was this time that we chose Jesus in the past and that that's enough. And we fail to recognize that to truly become a Christian and follow Jesus is a lifelong commitment to choosing him. Every day we're asked the question, Jesus or this world? Every time we're tempted to sin, we're asked the question. Every Day in terms of how am I going to love my spouse? Will I choose Jesus or this world? How am I going to raise my kids? Will I choose Jesus and this world? In in my job, in how I handle my anger, in whether I make this purchase, in whether how I think and spend my time, in every one of those things, we're being asked to make the choice: Jesus or the way of this world. It's a choice we have to make each day. And three, it is a choice that we make by the grace of God. We make this choice on the basis of and in the context of God's grace offered to us in Jesus. Read verse 17 again. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. One of the most important things we have to understand about this call to choose Jesus and his ways is to recognize that he is inviting us in the context of his grace. Maybe we think that we don't deserve all those promises. We don't deserve to eat of the tree of life. And that's true. We don't deserve it. None of us do. But the good news of Revelation and the whole Bible is that the lamb has died so that we might be invited to it anyway. And that's especially important because the more we sit with the reality of what Scripture calls us to, the more we recognize how compromised our lives been how much we've tried to choose both Jesus and the world. And the only way we will be able to hear that call to come is to recognize that Jesus invites us out of love in his mercy, regardless of how much we failed in the past. So maybe we think we don't deserve it, and that keeps us from making the choice. Or maybe we think that we do. The way into the kingdom is always through grace. The way up is always the way down. It's always by being washed by the Lamb. And one of the great sources of compromise in the Christian life is actually our sense of self-righteousness and our refusal to recognize that it is that grace alone that invites us in. We think that we deserve God's blessing and that actually leads us to compromise with the world. That, that, I don't know that we always recognize this, but here's what happens to a lot of people. We approach Christianity like this. We say, I deserve God's blessings. I have earned them and I'm a good person. And that leads us deny our neediness and our brokenness. It's the one who is thirsty who is invited to come, not the one who has it all together. But when we start to think that way about God's blessings, that attitude almost always starts to influence how we think about the world as well. We look at the blessings it offers and we say, well, I deserve those things too. I've earned them. I am a good person. If we think we are righteous, we are primed to compromise with the world. It is only when we recognize that it is the Lamb who graciously offers us salvation that we can truly make the choice of life and hope. But the Lamb does invite us to come and be saved. Each day, he invites us anew to drink of the water of life that he has purchased for us. He is inviting us today. Hear him call. Come. And today, take that as yours. So that's three things. And then lastly, there's a prayer a simple prayer that ends the book. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. That is the prayer. Throughout our sermon series, I have tried to stress that Revelation is meant to speak to us about the world that we live in and the world that's existed since Jesus. And I've done that because Of that tendency. Some people have to instead try to read it with a newspaper in the other hand and decode the end times. But one of the main things that Revelation reveals about this age is that it is not enough. We need Jesus to come. Perhaps the greatest truth I've been struck by as I've sat with this book for the past eight months is this. It is that we all, deep in our souls, have this longing and this sense of the reality that this world is not what we were made for. We all have a deep sense that parts of this world are broken, that the greed and power and corruption and abuse and selfishness that has characterized every human society for all of history, that that is deeply wrong. We all have a sense that there is some joy and some beauty and some purpose to our lives that goes beyond what this world can offer, that we were made for more than this. I especially think about that longing when I talk with young people we all agree those of us who have gotten a bit older and i'm still young by some standards but um but i i even experienced some of this we're like man young people are just kind of idealistic and naive right they have these lofty ideals of what the world should be like and the world won't live up to that and they just need to get a little older and then they'll see and that's true but it's also tragic isn't it because in a sense The world should work like that. The way that they imagine that it works, that is beautiful and good, and the world should be that way. And what Christianity promises is that while this age is broken, and while those ideals will not be met in this age, that does not mean that they are wrong. They are good. In fact, they fall far short of the goodness that they're called to, and in the age to come, they will be fulfilled and exceeded. When Jesus returns and takes up his throne, when heaven and earth are made new, when the new Jerusalem is unveiled and this world becomes the temple of our Lord in that day, those deepest longings of our hearts will be met. This world will be restored and things will be the way they were meant to be. Christianity manages to both affirm those idealistic longings in our hearts while also acknowledging the brokenness of the world. It agrees with those longings and simply says that when we feel them, our ultimate prayer has to be, come, Lord Jesus. Come. They will be satisfied. We're just going to have to wait for their full satisfaction a little while longer. So that is the vision of this book. We live in a universe charged with meaning. Our lives are charged with significance. We are in a conflict between good and evil with dark powers moving in this world and this warrior, savior, king, riding out to defeat them. And he does it as this lamb sacrificed for sin. And we're called to give that, that savior lamb our allegiance with eternal stakes in that choice and a promise of true happily ever after at the end. That's the story Revelation is saying is the story of the universe. Does that sound too, too grand, too much like a myth or fairy tale, that's because Christianity exists, that we live in such a mythological world. In our first sermon on Revelation, we quoted C.S. Lewis, who we quoted earlier, but he says this, he says, Now the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. He got that idea from his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, but Christianity is a true myth. Our problem, ultimately, is that sin has blinded us to the wonder and the significance, the fairy tale proportions of our lives. Our vision has been shrunk down until we see only the tiniest glimmers of it, and we, we can't recognize the reality of the meaning and power of the lives that we have if we are to truly follow Jesus in the age. It is that vision of the grandness and wonder of the world that we ultimately have to reclaim. Our lives matter. Our choices matter. The universe matters. It is one of a conflict between life and death. And, and what we do either feeds death or life. That is the vision I want to leave you with this morning. This world is full of dragons. Jesus Christ has come to slay the dragon, and he will destroy him. And Jesus, that slain lamb, invites us to come. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus. That is our prayer. Father, we confess, first of all, that we have so often failed to, to recognize the, the beauty of and power and significance of this world that you have made. We have cheapened it, Lord, in our cynicism, in our passiveness. We have failed to recognize the the purpose that our lives are meant to have. And I pray that you would forgive us for that and teach us to see it. Pray that you would come, Lord Jesus, to your church. Your church that has so often been compromised with Babylon and the beast. Your church that has so often failed to bear witness, as you have called us to. Lord, I pray that you would come and renew us and awaken us to that mission that we have in the world. We pray, Lord, that you would come to this world. This world is so broken. We think especially of the realities of COVID-19 and and the, the government orders that we labor under to stay at home and those who are alone and those who are sick and those who grieve those who are dying. We pray in all of their circumstances, Lord, that you would come now by your Spirit But we also recognize as we see that brokenness that our ultimate prayer, Lord, is that you would come fully. Jesus Christ, return to this earth. Fill up the book of life. Gather your saints to yourself. Come and raise our bodies and renew our world and take up your throne and reign and may your presence shine like the sun in this world. And may we all live as citizens of New Jerusalem, loving and laboring for you. We pray this, Lord, that you would come. In your name, Jesus. And now, friends, join me in the Lord's Prayer.